Thanks for listening to the teaching podcast of Bridgepoint Church. Stay tuned after the podcast for a short message, but for now, let's jump right in. How's everybody feeling? Have your coffee this morning? Like two people? That's good. All right. Well, it's still going to be a great morning. How many people here are excited that we're headed into the last week of school? Anybody excited? We got some students and teachers, the parents, maybe not so much excited about that. But man, I'm happy that summer is here. In fact, next week, we're going to take a one week break. We're going to pause our series on Revelation. We're having our big summer kickoff event. So we've got Kona Ice is going to have free snow cones for everybody. We're going to have a great message for you. And our summer life group signups will open next week as well. So you won't want to miss it. Great opportunity to bring a friend. But uh, this morning, we're in part three of this series where we're going through the book of Revelation. Now, I don't know if this has been your experience, but when I'm kind of out and about around town and people are asking me, hey, what are you guys teaching about at Bridgepoint? And I tell them that we're going through the book of Revelation. I always get this, this look like, why on earth would you do that? Well, why, why would you go to this book? I mean, it's confusing. It's weird. Some people have done some strange things with it. And my, my response is always, that's exactly why we're going through it. Because if we weren't going through it, then, then many of us probably wouldn't read the book of Revelation. We, we'd stay away because there's been a lot of people who have kind of twisted this book to make it mean something that it was never intended to mean. You know, for a lot of us, maybe you grew up with like the crystal ball approach to the book of Revelation, that it's supposed to be this crystal ball that reveals future events and things that are going to happen. But the reality is that Revelation is not a crystal ball to show you who the Antichrist is. In fact, the Antichrist is never even mentioned in the book of Revelation. The book is not a crystal ball into figuring out when the rapture is going to happen because the, the rapture is not mentioned in the book of Revelation. And you think, okay, well, if that's what it's not about, what is the book of Revelation about? And that's exactly what we've been discovering over the last couple weeks. In fact, I think this series, more than any other series, has been like a Netflix TV show. Because we're in week three, so it's kind of like if you're jumping in today for the first time, you're jumping into episode three of the series, so you'll be able to pick up on some stuff. But I'd encourage you to go back and listen to the last couple weeks' message either on YouTube or on our podcast, because it'll bring some more context into what this book is all about. See, for us, it really comes down to any book of the Bible. When you read it, you got to ask yourself a few questions. you got to ask yourself, who is writing this? When are they writing it? Who are they writing it to? And what problem are they addressing? And when we read any other book of the Bible, we kind of think through that grid. But for some reason, when we come to the book of Revelation, we like lose our minds, throw it all out the window and say, well, the dragon is, is this empire over here. And, and this is what this represents. And, and we kind of forget that that's not how you're supposed to read the Bible. In fact, we've been talking about how this is a book written by a guy named John. And it starts off in Revelation 1.1. It says, this is a revelation of Jesus to our fellow servants to instruct them about what must soon take place. So, so whatever revelation is, it's a revelation of Jesus. It's revealing something about Jesus. By the way, that's why it's revelation and not revelations. It's not multiple revelations. It's unveiling something about Jesus that's going to help these first century Christians make it through what's about to take place. It's not instructing them what's going to happen 2,000 years in the future or 5,000 years or 10,000 years. There's a message in the book that is supposed to help these first century Christians make it through what's about to take place. And what's about to take place? Well, a second round of intense persecution. 
See, the first century Christians had already come out of one season of intense persecution under the Roman emperor Nero, and they'd had a brief period of rest, and now they're about to head into another season. So this poses all sorts of questions for these first Christians, because they say, well, we know that Jesus died on the cross, and we believe that he rose again, and he said he was going to bring his kingdom to earth. He's going to bring heaven to earth. But, but this place looks far from heaven. I mean, I thought things were going to get better, but things keep getting worse. We're stuck in this cycle of persecution over and over and over again. What's going on? And so for some of them, they've kind of retreated into their safe little bubble and in their corner so they can avoid persecution. For some of these Christians, they've um, decided to look a little less Christian. You know, we'll be Christian, we'll have this personal faith, but we really don't want to be too blatant about it because we don't want to suffer persecution. And, and man, I don't know what it's like to be persecuted, but I do know the temptation to want to just have this personal faith that belongs to me and doesn't impact the way that I live or relate to other people at all. In fact, before I was a pastor here, um, I was in sales. And so when I, I left to become the pastor, I was training my replacement. And if I'm being very honest with you, that there was this fear in the back of my mind that I was going to introduce my replacement to some of these people I'd worked with for years. And when they found out I was going to be a pastor, we would say, man, I didn't even know you were a Christian. Like, do the people that are around you know your faith? Or is it just a personal faith that you keep private to yourself and it's really nobody else's business? Listen, following Jesus means people are going to know, but the temptation is always to retreat into what's comfortable for us. And so these Christians are really wrestling with how are we going to make it through this intense season of persecution? What is this going to look like? And so you have this series of visions. Last week, I don't have time to recap the whole thing, but last week we talked about how this letter fits into a genre of literature called apocalyptic literature which was a very specific type where the author would use series of these fantastical visions in order to show the heavenly realities behind what's happening on earth. So in other words, it's kind of pulling the curtain back. Here's what's going on spiritually to explain what's happening in the world right now. What's going on spiritually to explain this persecution and how the Christians are going to endure through that? Are we tracking so far? So last week, we were in Revelation chapter 4 and 5, and we got the first of these visions. And John looks up, and he sees this open door to the heavens, and Jesus says, hey, John, come up here. I want to show you something. And instantly, John finds himself in the heavenly throne room. And what he discovers is that God is sitting on his throne. He's surrounded by all of his people and all of creation, and they're all worshiping God, singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And as they're worshiping, John notices that God has this scroll rolled up in his right hand. And there's writing on both sides. And this would be kind of confusing if we didn't realize that this is actually a reference to the Old Testament. So we also said last week there's 404 verses in Revelation and 518 references to the Old Testament. So if you want to understand Revelation, you've got to understand the Old Testament. See, in the Old Testament, the Jewish people were wondering, when is God going to fix everything? When is he going to right every wrong? When is he going to bring his justice? When will he bring heaven to earth? And the prophet said, he's got this scroll. He's got this plan on how to do it. And John sees that God has this plan. But the problem is that it's locked up with seven different seals. And an angel said, who's worthy to open up this scroll? Who's worthy to bring heaven to earth? Who's worthy to, to fix this place? And they looked around. They said, nobody's worthy. And so John begins to weep. Because if nobody's worthy to open that scroll, if heaven can't come to earth, then this is as good as it ever gets. People being killed, persecution, experiencing death, and sickness. I mean, that would be an awful place 
to live. But as John's weeping, one of the elders said, John, don't cry. Look, look over there. It's the lion of Judah. It's, it's someone from the line of David. In other words, there's a mighty lion. There's a mighty warrior who's coming and he can save us. He's worthy to open the scroll. So remember, John hears that there's a lion. He hears that there's a warrior and he's thinking this guy's going to come and he's going to pick up his sword and kick butt and take names. That's what John hears. But when he turns to look, what does he see? Do you remember? Anybody? He sees a lamb that was slaughtered. He wasn't a lion king. It was a lamb whose throat had been slit, who was bleeding all over itself, but was somehow still alive. And that lamb was worthy to take the scroll and to open it. And we talked about the fact that Jesus doesn't always show up in our lives the way we want him to. You know, we want Jesus to come and to fix our marriage. And we want that dream job. And we want him to keep our kids safe. And we want the best house. And we want all these things. But even when Jesus doesn't show up the way we want, he's still worthy of worship. Like even when Jesus doesn't heal the cancer, even when Jesus doesn't give you that job, even when your marriage falls apart, he's worthy of worship because of what he's already done. He laid down his life. And so we, we see this picture of Jesus, this slain lamb, sitting on the throne with this scroll. And today we're going to read about how he starts to open those seals. So the next 10 chapters are something that is referred to as the three cycles of seven. Okay, we're going to see Jesus opens seven seals, and then there's going to be seven trumpets that are blown, and then there's going to be three bowls that are poured out. Now, I will tell you in advance, when I first put this message together, it was like an hour and a half. I said, nobody wants to sit there and listen to that, so we cut it in half. All right, so this is, this is part one this week, so it's going to kind of end on a to be continued, and then in two weeks, we'll pick up with part two, but if I'm being honest with you, I don't know if I'm going to get to the end of part one today. Because all of these things are so connected. It's important to point out things because a lot of people think that these three cycles of seven, that they're all like different, 21 different events that are going to happen before the end times. These are 21 events that are going to lead up to Jesus coming back. And so some people think these are events that have already happened or events that will happen in the future. But actually, when you look at it, the way this is structured, it's not, you know, three cycles of seven. It's the same story told from three different perspectives. Have you guys ever seen those Russian nesting dolls before? Like you open one up and there's another one inside and you open, you know what I'm talking about? That's what's happening here in this passage. Because Jesus is going to open seven seals and when he opens the seventh one, seven trumpets come out. And when the seventh trumpet blows, then seven bowls come out. But each of these uh, cycles ends with heaven coming to earth. And so there's a common message in here, each of these kind of pieces together to give Christians a message about what their mission on earth is supposed to be. John's going to kind of remind these first century persecuted Christians, listen, in the face of what you're going through, that this is what your mission remains. And so having said that, let's start Revelation chapter 6, verse 1. It says, then I saw the lamb open one of the seven seals. And I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, come. And I looked and there was a white horse. Its rider held a bow. A crown was given to him. And he went out as a conqueror in order to conquer. So what we notice here, this first seal is broken. And this white horse comes out. 
And there's a person riding it who has a crown, and he's going out to conquer. This is the first of the four, first four seals. Each of them releases a horse with a rider, and these are oftentimes referred to as the four horsemen of the apocalypse. No, no, what are these horsemen? Are these people that are coming in the future? What's going on? Well, I love that Scripture actually explains what each of these horsemen represents. They, they represent four things. They represent conquering. They represent war. They represent um, either economic inequality or, um, or a famine. And the last one is death. And so they represent four different things. War, conquest, economic inequality, and death. Now let me ask you this. If these are four things that are coming in the future, then when do you think we would experience war, conquest, famine, and death? Today. That's the right answer. We experience that every single day. See, we're not getting these pictures of the sequence of events, but this is painting the picture of what the world looks like from the moment Jesus ascended into heaven until one day he returns to earth. Like we experience all of these today. I mean, even our own nation, we, we just pulled troops from a war we'd been in for 20 years. I mean, there's places like Myanmar right now where, where there's literally a shadow government that's moving around and, and because of technology, they're meeting and ruling the nation in secret. This is 2021. This stuff is happening. There, there is war all the time. I mean, conquest. This is people who want to use their power to gain more power and influence. I and mean, we see that every day in, in politics here in, in our nation. Not only that, but if, you, if you're working in an office setting, you ever heard office politics? Yeah, people are always trying to use their power and influence to gain a leg up on somebody else. People will even do this in relationships. They will manipulate. They will try to control you. When we talk about economic inequality and famine, think about the fact that there's going to be somebody who dies today because they did not get enough food to eat. And you know what I'm going to do tonight after dinner? I'm going to scrape some food in the trash. Like there's more than enough food for everybody and yet some people are dying of hunger. And if you're sitting in this room right now, you are among the wealthiest few percent in the entire world because there's large segments of the population of the world that live on less than what it would look like for us to live on two US dollars a day. I mean, there, there's plenty of wealth to go around. It's just concentrated in these very small pockets. And of course, we all know what it's like to experience death. We've had family members or friends We've had people we loved who we lost too soon. I mean, these are realities that are present every single day. Now, I want you to notice what happens with this fifth seal. Let's jump down to chapter 6, verse 9. It says, When he, meaning Jesus, opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slaughtered because of the word of God and the testimony they had given. They cried out with a loud voice, Lord, the one who is holy and true. How long until you judge those who live on the earth and avenge our blood? So they were each given a white robe, and they were told to rest a little while longer until the number would be completed of their fellow servants and their brothers and sisters who were going to be killed just as they had been. Okay, there's a lot going on there, but let's simplify it down. The fifth seal is broken, and John has a vision of all these people who had been martyred. They were killed for following Jesus. They start to cry out, Jesus you're holy. You're true. We know your character. How long until you're going to stop this? How long until conquest and, and war and inequality and death, how long until you do something about this? And Jesus doesn't tell us exactly the plans, but he says, listen, trust me and rest. 
there's still more people who are going to join you. But then he clothed them with a white robe. Okay, I want you to pay attention to that. The people who died for their faith were clothed with a white robe. So there's this pattern emerging now that we have these first five seals are broken, and they all describe some kind of affliction. There's persecution, there's death, there's war. You get the point, okay? I'm, I'm kind of repeating myself, but I really want you to see the first five seals are some kind of affliction. Then we get to the sixth seal in verse 12. And this is where last week I kind of explained the book of Revelation was written to people who were illiterate. Okay, they weren't going to pick this up and read it. They would have heard this. And so I'd encourage you, maybe right where you're at, is just close your eyes and just pay attention to the images that are evoked as I read this scripture to you. John says, Then I saw him open the sixth seal. A violent earthquake occurred. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of hair. The entire moon became blood. The stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its unripe figs when shaken by a high wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll being rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved from its place. Then the kings of the earth, the nobles, the generals, the rich, the powerful, and even every slave and free person hid in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of the one seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, because the great day of their wrath has come. And who is able to stand? I mean, talk about some vivid imagery. I mean, you're talking like stars falling like figs, being shaken from the tree by a high wind. And we read this, and, and if you didn't know that every single one of these was a reference to the Old Testament, you might be thinking, okay, well, there's meteors that are going to hit the earth, and there's blood moons, and the blood moon's happening soon, so Jesus is about to come back, and we could really get caught up in the imagery instead of um, what the imagery is trying to tell us. See, all of this is talked about in the Old Testament as being the day of the Lord, what is the day of the Lord? I want to take a couple minutes here to explain this to us because the idea of the day of the Lord goes back to the book of Exodus. Anybody here ever seen the movie, The Prince of Egypt? Anybody? Yeah. All right, good. Okay. Enough of you have seen it. We'll kind of do the Cliff's Notes version. But the book of Exodus starts with God's people, the Jewish people living in Egypt and they're enjoying the favor of the nation. But when the, the, the king of Egypt, the Pharaoh dies, his replacement comes to power and says, you know, there's a lot of Jewish people here. And if they wanted to, they could overthrow us. They could enslave us. So I think what we ought to do is enslave them first. And so they issue a decree where the Jewish people are enslaved. And they even go so far, at one point, there's a decree issued where they will take the, the, the uh, baby boys born to these Jewish mothers and throw them into the Nile River to kill them. I mean, they're not just trying to enslave them. They're trying to destroy any kind of future potential this people has. And so the, the Jewish people start to cry out to God, God, how long are you going to let this go on? How, how long are you going to wait before you do something? And, and the answer was over 400 years. But when the time was right, God sent a savior named Moses to deliver his people out of bondage and into freedom. And how did he do that? He went before Pharaoh and he said, let my people go. And, and God used Moses to kind of declare these plagues, a series of plagues on Egypt. And there are plagues like hail and water turning to blood and darkness and locusts and all these different plagues come. And what happens every time there's a plague? What does Pharaoh do? Nothing. He says, I'm, I'm not going to be deterred by this. I'm just going to keep on doing what I'm doing. 
And so it finally culminates with the final plague where God says, I'm going to allow the destroyer to come in and kill the firstborn in every household. But to the Jewish people, he said, here's what I want you to do. You'll be protected if you take a lamb, if you sacrifice it, and you take the blood of the lamb and put it on the doorpost of your house, and then I want you to cook this meal, and I want you to eat this meal every year to remember this day. In fact, uh, they had this meal with unleavened bread because they would eat it with their backpacks on. They didn't have time to wait for the yeast to rise because at any moment the destroyer could come and God would liberate his people. I mean, this is a quick meal. This wasn't let me lounge around for three hours at the Mexican restaurant after church. This is, we got to be ready to go. And so they have this meal and sure enough, the destroyer comes through. The Jewish people are saved. The Egyptian people are impacted. And at this point, Pharaoh says, fine, get out of here. But as the Jewish people leave, what does Pharaoh do a short while later? He changes his mind and he chases them. He's coming out. Yeah, what, what on earth was I thinking? I got to go get these people back. And so the story kind of comes to a climax at the Red Sea. The Jewish people don't know what's going to happen. Moses raises his hand. The waters part. The, the Israelites pass through on dry ground. And in a beautiful moment of irony, the same Pharaoh who tried to destroy the Jewish people by throwing their babies into the water was himself destroyed when God brought the waters down on him and his army. And so the Jewish people kind of turn around. They see this happen. And it's like one of those, whoa, kind of moments. I mean, when God shows up in a powerful way like that, you don't even know what to do. So they just start singing. Saying, God, you're our defender. You're our mighty warrior. You've taken up our cause. You, you have brought justice. You've righted every wrong. And this was referred to by the Jewish people as the day. This was the day that God saved his people. Now, from that point, the Jewish people um, became the nation of Israel. And God told them, I want you to show the world what my love looks like. So listen, you know what it's like to be a refugee, so care for the refugees. You know what it's like to grow up in a house without parents, and so I want you to care for the orphans. You know what it's like to have family members killed, so I want you to care for the widow. I mean, he goes through this list of all the people they're supposed to care for. And for a while, Israel does everything they're supposed to do. But over time, as they gain more power, wealth, and influence, what do they start to do? They start to take care of themselves, start to get a little comfortable. And I find that this happens in my own life. I don't know, maybe it's just me, but when I had not a lot, it was easy to be generous because I didn't feel like I had a lot to begin with. But the more you have, the more you feel like you've got to protect you know, the more influence you have, the more I got to protect that. The more power I have, the more I've got to protect that. And so you actually see these pictures all throughout the Old Testament. When Solomon was the king, it said that he had 666 tons of gold, 666. That should tell you something's wrong with that because they'd been amassing wealth for themselves and neglecting the poor. It says that he bought and, and had shipped in chariots and horses from Egypt from Egypt, the place God saved you from, now you turn, you become the new Egypt because you're not trusting God to be your defender anymore. You think you can defend yourself in your own strength. And so God sends these prophets that keep saying, hey, do you remember the day? Do you remember the day God brought judgment on Egypt? If you're not careful, there's gonna be a day of the Lord for you too. See, I love this. God, judgment, the day of the Lord here is not a respecter of persons because it is very easy when we're persecuted to look forward to the great day of the Lord but when we're not being persecuted, we need to be reminded that if we don't live and honor God the right way, the day of the Lord is coming. Like he has called us to live a certain kind of way. 
He's called us to care for the orphan, the widow, the poor. That's the life he's called us to live. And sure enough, the Israelites, they didn't heed the warning. And so God removed his protections. The Assyrians came in, the Persians came in, the Greeks came in, the Romans came in. And for the next centuries after centuries, they're just being dominated by these other nations. They find themselves in exile. And when they're in exile, they ask the question, God, we know we messed up, but when are you going to save us? You ever had that before? Like you do something and immediately know you shouldn't have done it. You've been in an argument and you say something and you look at your spouse's face and you're like, whoops, I wish I could take that back. It's like they've been conquered and immediately they know, mm, I know where I messed up. And I'd love a second chance. And so they cry out, God, will you save us? And God sends prophets saying, one day there will be a day of the Lord where once again, I right every wrong. I'll bring heaven to earth. I'll wipe away every tear. That's the day of the Lord. And here we get this picture that Jesus says, one day the day of the Lord is coming. And when it happens, he borrows from the Old Testament here. Old Testament says, when the day of the Lord happens, everyone's going to be running for cover. They're going to be diving into the mountains. They're going to be trying to cover up because when Jesus shows up, all of a sudden you realize, wait, there's places I brought injustice. And if God's going to right every wrong, then what does that mean for me? Because I've done some wrong things. I've wronged some people. And so everyone is hiding. And they, they have this question there, who can stand when God is righting every wrong? Who can stand on the day of the Lord? So don't miss this. He's opening the seals. Five seals are afflictions. The sixth one brings the day of the Lord and a question, who can stand? It's at this moment that John pauses to answer that question. In chapter seven, he says, I'll tell you who can stand. I had another vision, a vision of an angel that had this signet ring. And every time he touched his ring to somebody, they were protected from the day of the Lord. So who's protected? I want you to notice chapter seven, verse four. He says, and I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the Israelites. So remember before he had heard there was a lion, he heard that there was a warrior, but when he turned and looked, there was something else. Here he hears that there's going to be 144,000. By the way, if you don't realize this is a reference to Numbers chapter one, which is a military census, then, then you might think, well, is, is only 144,000 people going to be saved? And that, that's what the Jehovah's Witnesses teach. And then I'm kind of selfish. If, if I'm one of them, I'm not evangelizing. I want somebody else to take my spot. But it's this picture here that there's this Jewish army that's rising up. So he hears that there's an army and they're going to fight. They're going to do something. This army's coming together. They're the ones who are protected. But if you jump down to verse 11, what does he actually see? Or sorry, verse nine. He says, after this, I looked and there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language, which no one could number, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, and they were clothed in what? White robes with palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. So John hears the people who are protected are this mighty army. But when he turns and looks, he doesn't see this Jewish army. He sees people from every nation, every tribe, every tongue, every economic class, every different skin color. He sees this vast multitude that no one could count. And they're wearing white robes, which means what had happened to them? They were killed for their faith. And they didn't pick up swords, did they? No, what was their weapon? It was worship. 
They were worshiping God. See, see, the army that, that God is putting together is not one that, that takes up swords and comes in judgment on people. It's people who lay down their lives like the very lamb they follow and who they worship. See, this is beautiful because how do we survive on the day of the Lord? All you have to do is follow Jesus. All you have to do is, is trust in him and live for him. You don't have to come to church. You don't have to give money in a bucket. You don't have to serve on a team. You don't have to memorize scripture. You don't have to do any of that. All you have to do is follow Jesus. But what did it cost these people to follow Jesus? Everything. And so it's simple, but that doesn't mean it's easy. See, Jesus is is raising up an army of people who will aid him in bringing heaven to earth. Are we tracking? All right, so I'm going to recap one more time. You got five afflictions, then the day of the Lord comes, and there's a question, who can stand? And and who stands on the day of the Lord? It's the people who believe in Jesus and follow him. And then the seventh seal is broken. Chapter 8, verse 1, when he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And then I saw the seven angels who stand in the presence of God, and seven trumpets were given to them. So notice here, the, the seventh seal is broken, and silence comes. Heaven's come to earth. All war has ended. All death is over. Tears are wiped from every face. Everything is the way God intended. But then all of a sudden, you got these seven trumpets. What's up with that? I'm going to take a look here. We're, we're, we don't have time to go into all the verses here. But, but when these trumpets are blown, the first five trumpets, you know what they, they are? Hail, darkness, blood in the water, demon locusts. What, what does that sound like? The plagues from Egypt, Right? It's all these things that are happening. So when we read it and we say, well, there's demon locusts and that's helicopters and everything. No, 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 no. This is referring to the Old Testament. It's this idea that in addition to, and then when you get to the, the fifth seal, it's actually the, the, the or the sixth seal, it's actually the, the four horsemen of the apocalypse again. See, John's painting this picture that, yes, guess what? We experience war and conquest and poverty and death, but get, guess what else we experience? The very nature of creation is broken. Like there are things in this earth that, that, that are broken and not the way they should be. Have you ever wondered why, why are there tornadoes and hurricanes that, that take lives? It's because the very fabric of creation has been broken. This is why I think it is terrifying to people and why people buy into conspiracy theories about COVID because it's scary to think that life is so fragile that one virus, not, not even a living thing, could jump from an animal to one human And a year and a half later, there's over half a million people in our nation who have died. Like, that's how fragile creation is. That's how broken this world is. So we want there to be some bigger explanation, because then maybe we have control over it. But the reality is, even creation itself is broken. There are afflictions we face every single day. What happens when the sixth seal is broken? It says, The sixth angel blew his trumpet, and from the four horns of the golden altar that is before God, I heard a voice say to the sixth angel, release the four angels bound at the great river Euphrates. Again, these are the four horsemen of the apocalypse. I want to jump down to chapter 9, verse 20. All these people have experienced all this pain. It says, the rest of the people who were not killed by these plagues, what did they do? I'll tell you what they didn't do. They did not repent of the works of their hands to stop worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, which cannot see, hear, or walk. And they did not repent of their murders, their sorceries, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. So the series of plagues and afflictions has been unleashed on this earth. 
And what do people do? Do they repent? No. Who else didn't repent when faced with plagues? Pharaoh. It's the same story being told over again. And it's this idea that when God's judgment comes, it doesn't lead to repentance. Judgment does not lead to repentance. I'll say it again. Judgment doesn't lead to repentance. And by the way, I want to make a side note here because you think, well, well, God's bringing this judgment. That seems kind of mean. But you know what? When, when God gives judgment, you know what he does? He just lets us suffer the consequences of our own actions. Like when you have kids, if you ever had kids and you say, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that. Sometimes the, the judgment is, all right, fine, I'll let you do that. And then they're reaping the consequences. We're reaping the consequences. That's God's judgment in our life. And so the question here is, if judgment doesn't lead to repentance, then what does? So remember, in the first cycle, you had five afflictions. The day of the Lord came, and the question was, who can stand? And then there's a vision that gives the answer to that. It's the people who believe in Jesus and follow him, and then heaven comes to earth. The second cycle, you've got these, these afflictions that come. They lead to this kind of day of the Lord reckoning. And the question is, well, well what does lead to repentance? How is repentance possible? And so John has these visions to answer that. And I'm running so short on time, I'm going to try to squeeze it in. The, the first vision he has is of a temple. And there are martyrs sitting next to the altar. And they're kind of worshiping Jesus. And God says, John, I want you to pull out your measuring stick and I want you to measure the dimensions. Which is an Old Testament reference to saying there's protection inside the temple. But then outside the temple, it says that the world was trampling on the people who were following God. He's saying, listen... What, what leads to repentance? The, the first part of that is you got to know that you may experience death in this life, but God's going to resurrect you. There's going to be protection in the next life. See, following Jesus isn't this ticket to get your best life now. But following Jesus means every wrong that's happened in this life, he'll write in the next one. And then he has this second vision where you have these two witnesses that kind of come up and, and they're preaching and prophesying to the nations about the world that God intends for them to live in. And I want you to notice what happens to these witnesses in Revelation chapter 11, verse 7. It says, when they finish their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war on them, conquer them, and kill them. So what happens to these witnesses when they proclaim the world that God wants? They get killed jump down to verse 11. But after three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them and they stood on their feet. Great fear fell on those who saw them. And then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. They went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies watched them. At that moment, a violent earthquake took place. A tenth of the city fell and 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake. The survivors were terrified. And what did they do? They gave glory to the God of heaven. See, the question is, what leads to repentance? Because judgment doesn't lead to repentance. What led people to repent? Because these witnesses laid down their lives, and then God vindicated them. Who are these witnesses? John actually says the witnesses are lampstands, which is his code word for churches. The witnesses represent you and me and the mission that we have in this world. Our mission is to be prophetic voices telling the world where we see injustice, where we see that things aren't right, where we see that things aren't the way that God intended them to be. 
But you know what happens when you talk about economic inequality? You know what happens when you talk about racial injustice? Do you know what happens when you talk about being pro-life from, from womb to the tomb? You know what happens? You get called a heretic. People get mad at you. People want to kill you. In fact, people will say, oh, you're, you're just being political. No, no, no. We're not being political. We're being biblical. We're, we're being the people that God has called us to be. But see, here's the thing. Don't miss this. Judgment doesn't lead to repentance. You're never going to get on Facebook and argue somebody into the faith. When you're hanging out with your friends, you say, you're sinful. This lifestyle, that judgment, that doesn't lead to repentance. What does? Repentance happens when we lay down our lives in love and God vindicates us. When you don't have to defend yourself anymore, you don't have to try to protect yourself anymore, you don't have to stand up for your own rights anymore, but you give your lives away to stand up for the people that God has called us to stand up for. Does this make sense? See, Romans says it's not judgment, but it's kindness that leads to repentance. And far too often, we think we're going to be this mighty army. We're going to pick up our swords. We're going to take America back for God. Well, what if Jesus isn't calling you to pick up a sword, but he's calling you to pick up your cross? He's calling you to lay down your career aspirations. He's calling you to lay down your financial goals. He's calling you to lay down your plans for your spouse and your kids, and everyone else, and to say, I'm just going to love, I'm going to serve, and even if it costs me something, I am going to care for them. Because I think those first Christians, they're experiencing this persecution there. They're experiencing pain. And I don't know, maybe you came in today, maybe you're experiencing some pain. Whenever I've experienced pain, it leads me to one of two conclusions. It's either going to push me away from Jesus, or it's going to push me closer to him. And listen, we lay down our lives for others. There's pain. And for some of us, we say, that's uncomfortable. I don't want to live that way. And so we put ourselves in our little Christian bubble, and we listen to our Christian music and watch our Christian movies and read our Christian books and hang out with our Christian friends, and we isolate ourselves from the world. And here's the funny thing. And we look at the book of Revelation and say, well, God's going to end the whole thing, so I'm going to isolate myself till he comes back, when actually the message of Revelation is, don't be isolated, charge into the world. Go into the world, lay down your life, be willing to lose everything because whatever you lose now, Jesus will restore to you later. It's an abundance mindset, not a scarcity mindset. We don't have to spend this whole life trying to get what's ours because guess what? God's got something better for us. So we can be willing to let go of everything. Now here's where we just got to stop, okay? We're, we're halfway through, but well, we got to stop. But I really want us to take this from the theoretical to the practical, because it is so easy to say, oh yeah, we need to lay our lives down and pat ourselves on the back and go out and nothing's changed. But in just a moment, we're going to have this time of communion. And when we have the, the cracker and the juice, the body and the blood, you know what we're doing? We're reenacting that Passover meal where the Jewish people had their backpacks on ready to go. And what we're celebrating is Jesus became the Passover lamb for everyone. Jesus laid down his life. He's worthy of worship because he laid down his life. And as we ponder that this morning, I want to give you two questions to consider. The first one is this, who do I know that needs to encounter Jesus? For some of you, it's a child. For some of you, it's a spouse. For some of you, it's a friend or coworker. Well, let's not leave it in the theoretical. Who do you know that needs Jesus? And the second question is, how can I lay down my life for them? What does it look like for you to lay your judgment aside? For you to lay your rights aside? 
your plans, your goals, so that they would encounter Jesus. To have three boys. And if you ask me, what would you be willing to give up so that they would have a relationship with Jesus? I would give up everything in a heartbeat. But you know that person you work with? There's another parent saying that same thing. And they've been praying. God, would you send somebody who would be willing to lay everything down so that my kid could have a relationship with you? See, we have to have this brokenheartedness and trusting in Jesus enough that we know that whatever we give up now, he's faithful to restore later. So I'm going to pray for us. We're going to enter into this time of communion. We have journals on the tables as well. Some of us like to, to just sit and write and process. So we're going to give you a moment because it would be a shame if we came and we're like, man, that's some interesting stuff in that book. And then we left and nothing was changed. And so allow God to, to speak to you. Allow him to put somebody's name on your heart, somebody's face in your mind. And let's see what could we do this week to lay down our lives so that they would encounter him. Let's pray. God, I love you so much. And I'm so thankful that you died for me. God, I know that on the day of the Lord, there's things in my life that would be exposed, that would be painful. But I'm thankful that I can trust in you. And today I'm committing myself to follow you, even if it means losing everything. I pray that we would be the kind of people who would speak up where we see injustice. We would speak up where... We see the world is broken, and we would use our, our, our privilege, our, our position, our power, not for ourselves, but for your kingdom. And I pray right now that as we take the body and the, the blood of your son, Jesus, that you would remind us of that sacrifice, and, and you would bring to mind people that we need to make sacrifices for. Give us a name. Give us a person and show us what it looks like to lay down our lives for them. We love you so much, Jesus. It's in your name I pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Bridgepoint Church Podcast. I hope we've shared something meaningful for you wherever you're at in your spiritual journey. Just so you know a little bit more about us, we meet on Sunday mornings in downtown Woodstock, but we also meet during the week in what we call life groups, and that's where the really good stuff happens for us. If you're becoming a regular listener of this podcast, we'd like to invite you to make it relational, just like we do during the week. Grab a Bible, invite some friends to join you, and turn this into a conversation. If you're already a regular listener and would like to support this ministry financially, you can do so by visiting us online at bpc.life and choosing the giving option that works best for you. Thanks again for listening.